Hello and welcome back to the Recipe to the Road podcast. You might notice that there's no background noise at all. That's because I'm recording from my home in Ireland. After 14 months of traveling and remote working, we left the Americas and are now going to spend some time getting reacquainted with our lovely Erin. But it's not the end of the podcast. I do have a few more episodes left of season one and we'll be recording season two soon. So if anyone listening is interested on being on season two, you can apply to be a guest. There's a link in the show notes description there. And I already have some amazing guests lined up, so I'm really, really excited to speak more to them and share that with you guys. But for now, let's talk about this week's amazing guest. This episode, I spoke to Ebony, who's a teacher, an author and a creator who really lives life with an open mind and heart. We met in Hopkins in Belize just after Christmas. Ebony spoke to me about an amazing way to see the world while earning money, and that's teaching English abroad. She shares the process about how she got started teaching English and some of her own stories and her own experiences of teaching English abroad. Ebony is originally from the US, but she's been traveling and living abroad for over five years now. So we really only scratched the surface in our chat, but I did learn a lot from her and about her different ways to travel. So I really hope you guys do too. As usual, apologies for the background noise in the podcast itself. It isn't too bad in this one, which is lucky because the hostel we were in was built entirely of wood with no insulation and the windows didn't have glass in them. So I do apologize. There's like people next door sorting glass bottles or something, um, I guess for recycling. So there's a lot of, there was a bit of banging and clattering, but I think I was able to reduce the background noise of that. Anyways, with that said, hope you enjoy the episode. Do let me know what you think. guys welcome back to another episode of recipe to the road podcast i'm in hopkins belize and i'm speaking to ebony ebony has traveled in many different ways and she has loads of tips to share with you guys and she also has a book out not about travel but we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, so i hope you enjoy the episode and please do excuse my voice i'm recovering from a cold that's just been dragging out so don't mind my sick sounding voice i'm fine <laughs> so ebony thank you so much for joining me you're welcome I'm really excited to hear about your different adventures because from our talk, chats already, like you've you've done a lot. I have in a short time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's been like five years now. This is my fifth year. Fifth year since living in the since US. living outside of the U.S. So, um, when I left for South Korea, that was the first time that I decided to leave the states, and I sold everything. And selling my car was like it became real. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm leaving. And I thought it would just be for a year, and then it continued until now. And can you tell me a little bit about where you're originally from in the U.S.? Sure, sure. I am born and raised in New Jersey. My parents are born and raised in New Jersey. Grandparents as well. Prior to them, it's more upstate New York and down in the North Carolinas. And do, do, does anyone else in your has anyone else in your family traveled or? No, I am like first generation for everything. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, like college travel. I give my mother and when my father was alive, just nightmares. I keep them up at night because no one else has done what I do. Oh well, they must be so proud of you. Like, all I don't know. Things. They don't express it like my dad. He did, but my mom just expresses her fear <laughs> more of anything. But maybe secretly, she is proud and she tells yeah. friends. And not me. I feel like a lot of parents express their love through fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if that's the case, she expresses so much of it. Yeah. <laughs> so much of it. So 
what was it so it was five years ago that was when you went to bali or that was when you actually moved abroad was it no so i took a solo trip to bali it was supposed to be a group trip to india and then people just started bailing out at the last minute and i'm like i need to go somewhere and i want to go somewhere that i feel safe as a woman traveling alone and Bali came up. I was in Bermuda and the store lady, how I do, I talk to strangers everywhere. And she was just telling me, I told her my two choices. And she said, go to Bali. She said, from your energy, I can tell you will love it. And that was the first time I ever experienced like joy and love and like pure happiness. It felt foreign to me. And that scared me that I've never felt like happiness like this before. That you felt in Bali? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It just opened me up to like a really pure love and happiness that I've never felt up until that point in my life. And that was from the locals there, was it? Or the locals, I think the energy of the place is as such, and they just express love and gratitude on different levels as well. They're the one place that I know that one day out of the year, they have a day of silence where they honor everything that attributes to giving them what they have. So like their car, they'll put flowers and offerings on the car because that gets them to work. Getting to work is what helps provide for their family. So everything that attributes to giving them life or adding to their life, they show and express gratitude to it. Wow. And that's the entire country for one day out of the year. <laughs> it's a day of silence. Day, like Thanksgiving, but different. <laughs> right, exactly. And they have offerings outside of each store. They won't open their shop without giving an offering. So it was just the expression of love and gratitude that they had for nature, life, and spirituality connected with me and opened me up. And I realized that happiness was a choice. And when I got back to the States, I was just sad. It was gloomy. People were talking about nothing. And I drove to work and I was sobbing. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You can choose to be happy. Like you can choose another life. And I remember the person I met from South Africa telling me she was teaching in South Korea. So I looked into teaching abroad and Got into South Korea, became certified to teach English as a foreign language, which is the TEFL. And that opens you up to different opportunities to teach too and live in a world. So I got the job in South Korea, was there for a year. I lost my father while I was teaching in South Korea. And that's when I, thank you. That's when I took my three year sabbatical. Okay. And just to rewind a little bit, you were saying that the reason you went to Bali, did you say because you were talking to a woman in Bermuda? So yeah, after my group that was supposed to go to India. Yeah, I was at the shop telling her what happened. And I'm like, you know, maybe I'll go to India. I don't know, India or Bali. And she said, so you were already, you were already traveling then? Or how, why are you? No, I only traveled to, oh, Bermuda. I had a friend that lived there. So every year I would make a trip to Bermuda. Okay, okay. Yeah, I love the people. It's like a the oldest English colony and they're Carib people. So people from like St. Kitts, St. Vincent, almost like here, living there. So you get the Caribbean and with a English accent. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's quite interesting. And they have some of the best beaches I've ever seen in the world. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's just funny to think like you're on holiday. Like, I mean, we've, we've all done it. Everyone who travels done it, but you're on holidays, planning your holidays. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <The> lifestyle. <laughs> and that was just always just a trip that I made to visit my friend. I would stay at her house and yeah, I was at a store and planning my next holiday and the lady at the shop was the little puzzle piece that helped me choose Bali. That's cool. So what I was going to ask you, yeah, so go back to what you were saying about South Korea. Mm. So you spoke to someone in Bali and they recommended teaching English? Yes, she was teaching English. She was from Johannesburg, from Soweto, Johannesburg. And at that time, she was teaching for a year. 
or two years in South Korea. I think entering her third year in South Korea. So she just kept saying it. And it was just random that she said, "Come." she kept saying, come teach in South Korea. And I'm like, that's just random. And I don't believe in coincidences. So when I got back to the States and I felt the feelings that I was feeling, I'm like, let me follow up with her. Yeah. And I remember she said I had to get certified for my TEFL. And then I realized that was quite a process <laughs> because I was working full time as a social worker. And my days would end around maybe I get home around 11 p.m. Yeah. Mm. And I would leave around 530 a.m. to be traffic because I worked quite far from my home. So yeah. my days were just long. And then I get home, I would take my course. <laughs> so I had to. 30 days to apply. So I had to hurry up and become certified, complete the application process, and you have to get a lot of certifications. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. But I was, I knew that that's what I wanted. Like, I didn't yeah. want to be in the US anymore. So. It was like your key out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it had to be fast tracked. So, oh my goodness. Cause yeah, I did the TEFL course a few years back. And like, it is like there's, there's a bit in it. Like, yeah. And even after the TEFL, like once you complete that, there's just a process for the program you're applying for for the country. So that was more intensive than the actual certification. Oh my God. It was getting all the documentation that they needed and it had to have certain dates and it was time sensitive. So that was the process. I'd say you were just running on stress. Yeah. (laughs) I did. But then once I left, it was, it's been the best thing, literally. So I always say Bali is what changed my life. Because that's where I realized, like, I wanted to choose myself and choose happiness. And I realized that happiness is a choice. Yeah. And I've been moving with that since. And I've made a vow to myself to never chase money again. (laughs) Because chasing money is what caught me up in a lot of jobs that I didn't have to be in. Yeah. You're not the first person on this podcast to absolutely love Bali. So... It's, I really have to get there at some stage. You should. I was in Ubud, and yes, it's saturated with tourists, but there is a charm to Ubud. There is an energy there that's quite nice. And you can stay outside of, like, the center of town in some of the rice paddies with, like, local families. Oh, brilliant. And you stayed with a local family, I did. I stayed at their compound, so I had, like, my own private villa. I think it was maybe 20 USD a night. (laughs) Yeah, it was really nice. That's brilliant. So, sorry, how long did you stay in Indonesia? I was only there for two weeks just because in the States, you don't get much time off a holiday. Yeah. That's when I was working in the States, so. That's, yeah, but it's still that two weeks was enough to change your life. It was. It was, and I moved through diff- three different regions while I was there, and it was my first solo trip, too, so it was a combination of a lot of things that changed. So. And then when you started teaching English, so obviously you had to do your TEFL and you had to do, actually, so... Firstly, did you just do a TEFL online or was there a specific one you had to do where you were able to just Google it? Is that how it worked? I did it online and South Korea, the EPIC program, they required 120 hours. So I did the 120 hour online. I used the same program that my friend that I met told me about. So it's ITTT okay. and theirs was like 120. It was quite cheaper than a lot of the other ones that I found. So, okay. And so if someone, say, wanted to go teach in English, they could maybe contact schools in the country and find out what TEFL they'd be best doing. Yeah, or find a program. Like, each country has different things. I remember Japan, um, they offered a lot of money, but you had to pay for your own housing. Okay. So there was that. And Tokyo was quite expensive to live. And then if you went to more of the rural parts, you would have needed a car. So I did a lot of research via YouTube. <laughs> like, YouTube and online and just watch videos from people who were actually teaching and people who did the application program. So the program I used was English Program in Korea, EPIC. Okay. So it's E-P-I-K. 
And that one is quite extensive. Like they don't just allow anyone in. And once you're in, you're good because they pay for your housing. They pay for your flight there, your return flight. You get a pension and a severance. Oh, wow. And for Americans, it's tax free for the first two years. Okay. So it's a hard program to get into. Like their interview process and everything that they require. But once you're in, completely worth it because you can save a lot of money. Okay. Amazing. So like... You obviously find this through a person, but people can just kind of look it up online. Yeah, if you, whatever country that you want to teach in, that you have interest in, just look into English or TEFL teaching in that country. Brilliant. And so then you were telling me that after you did that, you went backpacking kind of around the world, or where did you go? Yeah, I started in when I, I was dating someone in Johannesburg. They were from Zimbabwe. So I started in Johannesburg. That was my base. And then I traveled to countries within Southern Africa and East Africa. So I probably was on the continent of Africa for like a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I first started. And then from there, I went through Europe. Okay. And from Europe, I went back to the States. And then COVID happened to happen. It was like right before I knew that it was even a huge thing that it was. And I made a trip back to see my ex just for two weeks before I started a new job. In South Africa? No, I was actually deciding like, okay, I'll go back to the States and reacclimate myself there. And I found a job in the States. So I went back to South Africa for two weeks and I was stuck there for nine and a half months. Oh, because the borders are completely closed. Borders are completely closed. I just received an email from South African Airways saying your flight has been canceled and we don't have a date for when we'll be rescheduling. Oh my gosh. There's no number. There's like, there's no number to call us. Like, don't call. There's nothing we can do or say. So what did you do? I looked on the embassies, like U.S. embassies website, and they were directing you to the local government. There was nothing they can do. So luckily it was with who I was with at that time. So I stayed. And I thought like, okay, after a week and then the country went on lockdown (laughs) and in South Africa, it was very tricky because you couldn't leave your home and military tanks were coming down and they were quite aggressive with people that were on the street. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it was quite a challenging time. Yeah. To be honest. (laughs) And like, were you able to work while you were there? No. Were you able to do anything? No. No. I started a clothing collection, actually. I started designing clothes and I launched my first clothing line. Oh, we didn't even talk about yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I learned how to like um, sculpt like with clay, with terracotta clay. That was the first time I learned that. Someone around the corner had a kiln. So how lucky was I? Yeah. So yeah. I was making sculptures, doing paper mache, face sculpting, and then I designed clothes. And there's so many tailors. That's the beauty of Johannesburg. So I had a tailor from uh, Ghana and someone from Senegal that I used to make my, my items. And then where would you sell them? Finally, after nine and a half months later, I just used that time to design and meet and go get fabric because eventually the country allowed for you to move around. And once I had all my pieces and the land border, like I was able to leave, I went back to the States and launched my website and sold my clothes there. I, I used mean, my is friends. It still- no, um, after being in the States, I went to Mexico and I closed my website because I went to Somaliland. So when I was in Mexico, I applied for the position at the all-women's university in East Africa in Somaliland, which is a country within Somalia. They're not recognized globally, but they've been self-governing themselves since, I believe, 94 is when they received their independence. Okay. And this, so your um, application process for Somaliland, would that have been similar to what you had to do for South Korea? No, completely opposite, because they were not really looking for a TEFL 
teacher. They okay. wanted an English teacher. Okay. So I applied to the university as a, they put me as a technology in the classroom. So um, to back up, the university is training young women to be educators. Okay. So all of the young ladies that go there either want to do communications or education. Because of Somaliland's history, women are really not in the workforce. <laughs> Maybe okay. 3% of women are oh, in the, wow. yeah. And as far as teachers, you might find like an older lady teaching maybe one out of 20 schools okay so it's very male dominant and it's just scarce and the material is very old too because somalia has an oral history okay. not really a written and modern that we find from like the west so okay those barriers were there <laughs> right and how did you find the opportunity in somaliland like mm. i think a lot of people might not have even heard of somaliland before did nor did i sound like a fairy tale place um i like to say it found me honestly i was just closing the computer giving up on like i was looking for east um for asia and somehow this thing came up and it said oh and i went to their website and i saw pictures of the young women and they showed all of the stats of like women's roles in the country and what they're trying to do at the university to reverse that and they have a sister high school a science and technology high school that once the students complete there, they go off to universities in America. Oh, brilliant. To continue their education. So I really liked the mission. And um, I did three interviews. The last one was with the president, who was new. <laughs> she just came on maybe two weeks prior to our interview. And she was from Nigeria and quite powerful. So she and I spoke. She loved my work professionally and personally. Um, I had did something called the Black Girl Joy Box, where... I sent random boxes to young girls. <laughs> like I put it out on like my internet, like YouTube, well, my Facebook at that time, telling people that I wanted to sponsor five boxes of my own money to young girls. And I just wanted, it was a box full of like just affirmations. I had friends who had small businesses, so they donated things. And then I put journals. It was just a, a box of love and joy randomly sent. So then people started sponsoring and donating. I sent 25 boxes free of charge to young ladies. So One is this what you still, do, you still do this now? or No, that was just a random project. There's okay. moments where I miss social work. I miss connecting to young people. So I'll find another way to do it in my own way. So I did that when I was in the States right after there's South Africa when COVID like they opened the borders back up yeah so I was in the States maybe two and a half months and I did that while I was there before coming to Mexico okay and then that helped with your application for yeah because I guess they see like professionally and personally I'm very committed to giving back so um that did help yeah in my interview and she told me when the position would be started and they would fly me from anywhere they said they would have flew me from Mexico, but I decided to go back to the States to get some things. And yeah. I went to Somaliland. And what's Somaliland like? It is very different than other parts of Africa that I experienced. Um, okay. It's dry. And where I was, I was in the middle of the desert, an hour and a half away from the capital. So it would be a very bumpy land cruiser ride. Like there are no paved roads. It's just desert and it's like a safari ride because there's wildlife just everywhere. Hyenas, like just really? every time we would go into town, it was like my own personal safari ride because it was just like baboons would be on campus, like just animals all over. So we had camels on campus. So I would walk outside and I could see a camel every day and donkeys and sheep. And it was interesting how they lived off of nothing <laughs> because there's the desert desert yep so i became a fan of camel milk because oh. it's so yeah so somali people drink tea they call it sha and they make it with camel milk which is anogil 
that's what camel milk translates to in Somali. So having that, their tea is more like a chai. It has like cloves, cardamom. They boil like a bunch of spices in with black tea. Okay. And they mix it with the smoky camel milk. Oh, that's interesting. And what does camel milk taste like? Smoky, I say it's like, um, like a gouda <laughs> almost. It's like a very smoky flavored milk, but it complements the spiced tea very well. Okay. And like, would they farm the camels or like? No, these are free range camels. And actually camel milk has more water than most milks. Yeah. So the people there live off of camel milk more than they do water because water is not accessible. So they drink camel milk and it has such a high water concentration that it hydrates them. Mm -hmm. So the camels find the water, store it in their homes and share it with the people almost. Yeah. Camels don't require much water. That's so interesting. And what was the food like and the food and drink like outside of the camel milk? Uh, So we were on campus. So um, that was very different than if we were in a community, like locally. So we had cooks cooking for us and it was very rice heavy and meat heavy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because the meat are fresh. So whatever they kill fresh that they have. Chicken is rare out there. They only use chickens for eggs. They don't really use chickens to eat. So if it was a chicken, it came somewhere from the Middle East. It was imported. If you ate chicken. Fish was rare unless you were along the coast. And then even then it was like a darker fish that wasn't quite nice. But um, the Somali rice was nice because they would make like a a roux, a stew of like tomatoes and onions and all of these things with spices. They would put clove Mm. in the rice. Okay. So that was nice. So pretty much rice with a meat was the diet. Because vegetables and stuff would be very hard to grow, right? So it came from Ethiopia. All of the fresh veggies came from Ethiopia. Okay. Interesting. And what was, like, the most standout moment in your trip in Somaliland? Well, probably our six-hour trek to the next village. (laughs) Me and some other teachers. And um, because it's an Islamic, a very strict Islamic country, women, when you are out, you have to be fully covered. Your arms, your neck, your head, everything. So we took a trek in the desert, in the heat, fully clothed. (laughs) And it was three hours there and three hours back. But it was so nice because we finally saw like green trees actually had vegetation on them as we were trekking through. And you were walking through what was once a beach because Somaliland used to be a beach place full of water. So the water there is salty because it used to be a beach. That's how dry and how much they've been in a drought. And is it, so is it close to the coast? Yeah, or? it has a coast. That coast was huge for trend, um, importing and exporting back in the day. So yeah. Somaliland was a huge port for trade. But now the sea has dried back a bit, is it? They still have the coast. It's just politics. And they're working on opening back up to allowing it to be a port. But they're like Berbera is the coastal part where their port is. And Berbera still is a, a beach town. Okay. So it sounds like, like, if, like is that something that they'll get? To do down the line, like open that port back up, it sounds like that would make They're a huge trying, difference. but they're no longer Somalia. So when that port was open, the country was one. Oh, so Berbera is Somalia, not Somaliland. Somaliland. Yeah. Oh, sorry, it is in Somaliland. It's in Somaliland, not Somalia. So it's just a political thing right now. Okay, so just they're still trying to figure out like what what they can and can't do. What? Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And did you go to Somalia at all? Like, did you I see did. A um, I went. And because of the network that I worked for, they thought we were coming to teach Christianity. So we were met with a lot of opposition from extremist groups. So when I first flew into Mogadishu, I stayed on the plane. But then I went to Puntland, which is um, 
another kind of self-governing region, but there's still Somalia. So I traveled there. And when they saw that, um, it wasn't because I was an American. It was because I worked for the agency I did. They told me I had to leave. Oh. immediately but luckily the person I was with her family had government affiliation and they were able to allow me in for a week I was supposed to stay there for the whole month of Ramadan but it only lasted a week in Somalia mm-hmm. it looks exactly like Somaliland <laughs> and then they let you like you were allowed into Somaliland then yeah I can come in and out anyone can go in and out of Somaliland okay it sounds like social experience it was and anytime i left campus i had to have an armed guard with me at all times oh really yeah to walk anywhere anywhere that was outside we were in a gated community so we had to be inside within the gated community was a wall it looked like a prison if you were walking by yeah so within our prison (laughs) there was literally like a courtyard like a basketball court for the students to play basketball and then they played soccer which is football outside of america and i say that's why i'll say football so they play football and um that was life in campus. We were very secluded. And if we walked outside of campus to the nearby village, which was like a 15, 20 minute walk, had to have a soldier with you. I can never go by myself anywhere. And like, why was that? Because of our agency and because of the threats that were made up against the agency. Again, they thought we were coming in to teach Christianity. And here's the thing. Women's future is already determined at birth when you are born as a woman in Somaliland or Somalia because you get married off very young. Right. And marrying off means that your family now gets camel. They get stock. They get money. That is how it works out there. So a father, you marry off your young girl and you get money in return through stock. So the only way out of that is through education. Yeah. So we're taking away wives, essentially. Right. Yeah. I probably, I don't want to know how young do they have to get married? Some of them can get married very young, maybe eight, seven. It all eight. depends Depends on who fancies them. Depends on if it's a, they're nomadic people. That was the first time I've ever experienced like a nomadic life where they move with nature and they're very in tune to that. So they'll set up shop wherever they are and live because they travel with their livestock. So That's really cool. Eight. Yeah, it depends on who. There's a book called Desert Flower, which I highly encourage all to read if you want to know about life in Somalia. She touches on FGM, which is female genital mutilation that occurs very much so out there. So she touches on a lot of life as a, from a female perspective in an Islamic country, especially a country like Somalia. And you get to see how the country changed before the war and before Italy came in and occupied Somalia because they are who colonized Somalia okay and so FGM is still very much in practice oh absolutely absolutely okay I'll put some links in about that yes but Desert Flower is a great book um there's even a movie that they made they adapted it into a movie as well okay brilliant um so how long in total did you end up staying in Somaliland one year I survived (laughs) I survived one year in the desert I'm very proud of myself um I had camel spiders in my room. Like, it was just another life. I got very used to seeing snakes. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, like, it was just things you had to get used to. Bathing out of a bucket, harvesting rainwater to bathe, and, like, you just get used to a different way of life. And is it, like, did you enjoy it? Was it... There were parts I enjoyed. I liked silence and being able to see the sun rise over the horizon with no interruption. Like, I literally get to see the sun creep up from 
the ground. <laughs> yeah. And watching it set was beautiful because it was set over Ethiopia from the view that we had. And that was just mountainous terrains of rolling hills. So, oh, so you were very close to Ethiopia. Very close to Ethiopia. About an hour by road from okay. the main city. Mm-hmm. And did you get to visit Ethiopia? I stayed in there when I flew in. My layover was in Ethiopia. So I stayed the night in Ethiopia. Okay. But Americans, um, really only just Kenyans and Somalis can ch- cross the land border. Oh, really? It's only $20 to cross. But only if you're from yeah. one of the neighboring countries. Because um, there's a lot of Somali people in Kenya and in Ethiopia. So they keep borders open to people that occupy those lands. And why don't they let other people, you know? They used to. It stopped maybe two years ago. Anytime there's like a border crossing issue or you have to pay a certain tax, it's typically like politics with the country to country. So yeah. I figured America did something. Yeah. <laughs> and Ethiopia didn't like it. And now they're getting us back by making you fly in and pay more. Okay. Yeah. Um, so after you finished in Somaliland, that was only recently that you finished your year there, right? I finished in July of 2022. And did you come straight to go straight to Mexico then when you were finished? No, I came back to the States. I wanted to tie up some like loose ends, but I always have like weird culture shock and like PTSD when I'm in the States. It's very jarring for me to adjust back there. So I only spent like a month and a half and then I came to Mexico. What is it about the States when you go back? I think um, being in a desert, the largest store was like a small tienda in Mexico. So the huge capitalist country doesn't really align with small places like Somaliland. It's very local and small. And in America, it's huge. Like Target is huge. Walmart is huge. There's so many options. You don't get options like that. There's camel milk or regular milk. (laughs) You know, like there's not almond, coconut. There's no all these variations of things. Yeah. It's simple. Simplicity versus just over the top glamorous living. Yeah. What always strikes me in the US and also in Canada is like, it's not even like there's so much variety of things, there, but there'll just be like the same pasta, but seven different brands of the same pasta. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Like even cereal. I went back and they had like a coffee creamer that was fruity pebbles flavor. <laughs> and that's a cereal. So they have like cereal flavored coffee creamers. It was no. just, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like the variety in the States is insane because in Europe, like in England specifically, they can't sell red dye things. So yeah. they don't have as much access to artificial things. They don't sell that like in the States. So the States will make and create anything in a lab and put it on a shelf. Yeah. So we have variety unlike many other places. So even in London, you'll find an American snack store. Or like when I've been in yeah. Europe, I find American candy stores because we just use more junk than other countries. Yeah, it is definitely different. I think like, I don't even know why, but yeah, it just seems like it's developed. Like people have gotten so used to things coming out of packets. Like I remember we were having um, Christmas dinner and I'd made pumpkin soup and someone asked me what was in it, like another Irish guy. And I was like, oh, it's like lentils, pumpkins. I was just listing out the things. And there was an American fellow there, lovely guy. And he was like, wait, this didn't come from a can. Like, no, it's Christmas Day. I'm going to make the soup. <laughs> right. It's Christmas Day. It's not from like, a can. It's a special, special occasion. He was like, oh, like, he was so impressed. Like, and, like no shade to him. Great guy. Mm. But it just was something that he'd never experienced before. Mm. Like soup that didn't come from a can. Mm-hmm. It's like soup is so easy to make. Like It is. It's very easy. It's water and veggies and whatever base yeah. you want. But it's much easier when you can just open up Campbell's soup and pop yeah. it in a pan. 
or pop it in a bowl and put it in the microwave. Or the other big one we noticed in Canada was, you know, like cranberry sauce. Mm -hmm. And so we took it out of the can. Like in Ireland, it comes in a jar Mm. or else you make it yourself. But we had the canned one because that's what was available. We took it out of the can and like mashed it up to get it all mixed around. Mm -hmm. So I was like, no, what are you doing? You're supposed to slice Slice it off. Yeah, that's like, how do you know how much you're getting? Like. What would happen if someone brought homemade cranberry sauce to Thanksgiving or Christmas? That's right, because it would be more like a jam, like a spread. Yeah. yeah. But no, you do slice it. I know, it's so strange now, and I grew up that way. But it looks really gross now to see, like, cranberry sauce coming out of a can and you slicing. It just, like, plops out. Yes, it does pop up, and it wiggles, and yeah, you slice it. You don't mash it up. Yeah. And, like, it's no shade. Like, it is, it's what people grew up with. It's what everyone has their own normal. But. Yeah. Even vegetables and fruits. Like, spending time in Somaliland and getting it from Ethiopia. Like, the tomatoes were different. The watermelon all has seeds. It's very hard to find seeds in watermelons in the States. It's very hard what? to find seeds in oranges. Yeah, a lot of fruits don't come with seeds. Americans like seedless things. I do like a seedless grape now, but I haven't heard of other seedless fruits. Oh, it's hard. Like, it's to the point, if someone posts a picture, I remember being on Facebook, and one person posted a picture of, like, a watermelon that had seeds, and all you saw was comments, where did you find this? Which store? Mm-hmm. Wow. So finding fruits with seeds is just rare, and I'm like, how are you growing this if it doesn't have a seed? Yeah, well, it's very, like, controlling of the food supply if you don't let people have seeds. Yeah, and things just taste different. So, like, when I'm in the States, I'm like, nothing is real. Like, I get sick and I gain so much weight immediately. I can be there for really? two weeks and I'll put on 10 pounds easily. Really? Just the portions the and just, I don't know what they're putting in things. Yeah. And would the food be, like, the biggest kind of thing, culture shock thing when you get back? or No, the people... The people don't really speak. And in other countries, they're way more engaged. And so in Somaliland, the Islamic country, like um, the Islamic community, it's either you're speaking in Arabic or Somali. But either way, someone will greet you on the street. So if I say Salam Alaikum or Sabawan Aksan, which is like um, a greeting for good morning, if I say that to someone, I'm getting a greeting back. In the States, I say good morning. They're just looking at me. If they make <laughs> eye contact and they're just going by. You do not interrupt someone on their flow to going. It's different in southern countries, but I'm from the north. So yeah. people are just busy and individuals getting yeah. to where they need to go. Well, all around, kind of like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, that's like the real like industrial people are making money, mm-hmm. like financial kind of center, isn't it? Time is money and people don't like you to waste their time. Yeah. Under, by any means. They don't like you to waste their time. If you are in their way while they're walking down the street, you will get pushed (laughs) without an apology. Oh, no. Yes. Yes. Welcome to America. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't haven't spent too much time around there. So I've literally, like, five, six days in New York and, like, across two trips, that's it. So Mm. it's not sorry I'm too familiar with. But yeah, I can can imagine because I feel like even Dublin, I've noticed... Like, I went to college in Galway, which is on the west of Ireland. And then mm. when I came back to Dublin, I would just be at home. Like, or like I'd be at home in Bray, which is outside Dublin. And, like, I hadn't been in the city centre for a few years. And then, like, I remember going back in certain work and people just seemed a bit less friendly. Like, as the city gets, like, bigger and busier and mm-hmm. I suppose as people have a longer commute, like, mm. people start seeing it. Like you say, like, seeing time as money. And, like, I remember one day my school bag was just open. Like, you know what happens sometimes. And someone will tap you on the shoulder and be like, oh, your bag's open because mm-hmm. you don't want someone to lose their stuff. And I was walking on for ages and I noticed in the in a mirror that my bag was open. I was like, my bag's been open since I got off the bus like 10 minutes ago. Wow. No one said anything. 
And that's when I was like, Donuts changed. <laughs> yeah. Like just those small things people don't really do anymore. So I don't know, like the human part of society I feel is lost sometimes in the States and that doesn't resonate or align with me. Do you think COVID helped at all with that? No. um, And I was a spectator with America for COVID because I wasn't there. But I do remember people asking me like, what's up with your people? Why are they complaining on the news that they can't get their nails done? (laughs) You know, like it was just very superficial. So I don't even know if that brought anyone together. Like when I saw unity, it will be because like of the Black Lives Matter. So I would see more cultures coming together to protest and speak up for what was happening then. But for COVID, no, I think if anything, COVID really detached people from people. Okay. Because they were staying cooped up in their house and now they're scared of each other. Stay away from me. We need six feet. Yeah. And stay in your bubble and put a mask on to where I can't even see what you look like anymore. I only know your eyes. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that further detached them. I and no one really talks about the trauma associated with COVID and how people are still... Like, I was traumatized being stranded in another country. It would be. You know? But we all had to just continue moving. And once work started opening back up, everybody jumps back in and we go back into the cycle of... It just went back to normal. But we're not anymore. There's a new normal and the old one has to be processed. It's yeah. Still, so. Yeah. And so when you were, were you in South Africa when George Floyd got murdered and the Black Lives Matter got really big? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there for his. I was there for a lot. Like after him, it just sparked a lot of attention to other ones that were happening. So I just stopped watching the news. And because it was parallels happening in Johannesburg as well, like George Floyd was murdered. And then there was a ban against alcohol and cigarettes. So the tobacco company and the wine industry were protesting. Like Europeans who occupy space in Cape Town specifically because it's a wine country were very upset. They were going to parliament and everything to fight against the ban against it. So even stores couldn't sell alcohol. Okay. Because they say people share these things. So a bear will have six or seven mouths on it. A cigarette can have 10 mouths on it. So to reduce that and reduce the spread of the virus, they were trying to contain it by banning the sale of alcohol and tobacco. That's interesting. Very interesting. (laughs) And what I was going to ask you was when, like, Black Lives Matter and stuff was getting, obviously it's always been big in America, but Mm. when it was, like, really, like, coming to the, like, mainstream attention, was there, like, talk of that in South Africa because obviously South Africa has apartheid past and stuff Mm. like that was there like talk of it did it bring up kind of anything or oh that's where I was going so they had their own protest because someone was murdered in their lawn like on their in their house because they had it so it wasn't the um ban wasn't that you couldn't drink you just couldn't purchase like the sale of alcohol was prohibited the sale of alcohol and tobacco products were prohibited so even rolling papers you couldn't find And that pushed up their price from people who were selling on black market because they couldn't be sold in the store. So because of that, a military person had murdered someone sitting outside their house drinking. But in one of the smaller shanty towns, which is like the oldest one when the gold mine rush happened and people started coming to Johannesburg, that one, one of the first ones, that's where they went and targeted these people. But they had no access to the radio and things like that to hear these new laws and rules. So a lot of people didn't even know that there was a lockdown out there or that today is the only day you can go to the store. Oh. So when they would leave their home as normal business, they were being attacked brutally by military people in trucks, which brought back triggering moments from apartheid because it looked like that for them. Yeah. 
because it was black people that were getting targeted. Well, during apartheid, it would be military trucks riding down the street. And if you failed to provide papers that you were a citizen or you had a right to walk down the street at this time, you would get arrested. Yeah. Or you would get attacked. So those same things were happening during COVID. So it was wow. quite triggering for the people. So they were protesting for that too. So in the States, you have black Americans being murdered and then Africa, South Africa specifically, you have to distinguish between white African and black African. Yeah. It's the only country in Africa where people will make this distinction. Yeah. So you have black Africans being murdered as well. Oh my gosh. So the parallels were quite uh, much for me. So I just stopped watching news in America. And in Johannesburg, I was hearing stories of women who were pregnant being hung. Just a lot of violence against women. I love the country, but as a woman living alone, I just don't quite feel safe. Otherwise, I would be living there, probably not Mexico. Really? Yeah, I love Johannesburg. I've heard a lot of people say that they loved it and stuff, but mm. for women, it's it's. Not. I just don't. I personally wouldn't feel safe living alone. Yeah, and why were women being hung? Um, another person from there told me you have to look at just the systems that are in place. She said the, they see women on the same level as children. Oh. Because you go to a place and it's women and children. Okay. So they don't see women as even like respectable to be seen as like a citizen of a level. So where we can hear you and your voice matters. Yeah. So it's kind of like that very patriarchal. Okay. Wow. And so... We'll change tune a little yes. bit. <laughs> we are very political there, but very important, of course, mm. to talk about that stuff. So now what you're doing is you're kind of traveling and you identify as a storyteller. Yes. So can you tell me a bit about your storytelling project? Yes. So um, typically, almost like what you do, just in a different, I use different platforms to do so. But when I meet interesting people or I come across people who are indigenous of wherever I'm traveling, I kind of get their stories. So whether it be through food, (laughs) through music, like one person, we were at a cenote in Bacalar, Mexico, and he starts singing music in an indigenous language. And he's playing drums and he's by fire and showing us different techniques on how to keep a fire alive, like just blowing through your fingers and putting just a small little hole once they connect. But I like to share stories like that, stories that often get overlooked or just people don't know about and people who can't tell their stories anymore. I do that. So I'll interview people as I'm journeying. And um, lately, the book that I did was more about just an international love connection that sparked between two people in Mexico and how they keep that connection alive. So just sharing like my stories and travels through my journeys through traveling and experiences. And what is your book called? Computer Love. Computer Love. And where can we find that? You can find it on Amazon. It will be on Kindle. It's an ebook only. Perfect. I'll share the link to that in the um, description as well. Thank you. Um, and so your stories, like from people that you meet and stuff, like where where do you share them? So those are on my YouTube. Um, sometimes I put them in written form on my blog. And I share on like all my platforms will be consistent with that. So Instagram, TikTok sometimes, but mainly Instagram and YouTube. Nice. Yeah, well, I'll share links to all that. Yes. Um, what so far from your stories, like what's 
Tell me, tell me a story. What's one of the most interesting stories from uh, my, my most interesting travel story will be in Zimbabwe. I had the pleasure of being allowed into a small rural village where you have to get permission from the chief to stay. They have no electricity whatsoever, but it was the woman there. She goes by Gogo. And in the Bantu languages, Gogo just means grandmother, like an elder. So you just call her Gogo. So Gogo just had this infectious laugh like beautiful and I remember her just like being an extraordinary person I never met anyone like her so um we stayed at her compound and then there were just boulders Zimbabwe translates to place of stone and it's just rock formations like you've never seen ever just there huge huge boulders just everywhere it's beautiful and some of them are stacked on each other and you can just climb so um we stayed with her and then Maybe a couple of months afterwards, I hear her story that her husband, um, there was a genocide that happened in Zimbabwe and her husband was murdered in front of her, decapitated. Mm. You'll never know this because of Gogo's infectious smile. Yeah. So just to know how she chose to live yeah. and continues to live and continues to smile. And then I'm watching BBC's, um, they have a series called The History of Africa. Yeah. And guess who was on? They show the trailer and I'm looking and I'm like, Gogo! Oh, my God. And I'm like, I knew she was an extraordinary person. We didn't ex- understand each other's language, but she would just laugh and smile. Mm-hmm. And it would cause me to laugh and smile, which would make her laugh and smile even more. And we would just sit there laughing and smiling at each other. Oh, nonstop. And she cooked for me. Like, she cooked, like, traditional indigenous way. And, like, it was just, it was great. It was a really great experience being out there, being connected to the land. Like, no electricity and bathing out of a bucket. I wound up doing that plenty of times after that. But at that point, that was my first time. It was time. a novelty. <laughs> and how did you end up going to this place? Uh, a friend at that time was from Zimbabwe and he knew Gogo from her children. Okay. So he was friends with um, Gogo's son. So he frequented that place a few times. So he said, we should go check it out. And I'm like, yeah. But they make their own bear there as well. It's grainy and it's out of corn. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and then the marula nuts fall. So, like, the animals are quite drunk because if you have um, if you have the marula nuts, it gets you drunk, you have enough. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> you'll see them just chilling. The cows are quite chill out there because they're feeding off of the fruits of oh, the land. So funny. It is. And what would be your biggest tip for anyone who wants to travel in any different way? Mm. One thing I've learned is that It's more about embracing the journey than the destination because we'll plan about these things and you'll have something completely organized and I think it closes you up to just allowing spontaneity to happen, allowing, just closes you up to meeting people. Me, I talk to strangers. They say don't, but talking to strangers have allowed me to go see countries that I wouldn't have saw for free. Like I've stayed with these people that I've met in their hometowns free of charge. I've gone to Botswana. I've gone to places in Southern Africa and I've stayed with travelers that I met while backpacking who invited me to come stay with them and allowed me to stay in their homes while traveling. So just embrace your journey. Be open. (laughs) Be open to the people that you meet and to whatever happens. Don't look at it as something that's happening to you, but happening for you. Okay. Amazing. I'm just going to finish with my quick little quick fire round. Okay. So what is your favorite country you visited? <sighs> oh, man. I don't know. There's so many. But my top two would be Bali and Zimbabwe. Okay. Bali and Zimbabwe. Um, and what's your favorite accommodation? In Indonesia. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Indonesia, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, and what's your favorite accommodation that you've stayed in? Ooh, Casa Pancha in Mexico City. Okay. It's a hostel. 
What did you like about it? The architecture is absolutely beautiful. It looks like Casablanca. Very Moorish arches, all white. And then their upstairs where you eat has a beautiful panoramic view of the sun setting. It's all glass. And that's Mexico City? That's Mexico City and Roma Norte, which is a really nice area. Perfect. And what's your favorite memory or experience from traveling? Go, go. Go, go. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And taking a um, train across the country of Zimbabwe, I went from the south to Victoria Falls to the north. Okay. Victoria Falls is very famous, isn't it? It is. Yes. The widest, most water, like in terms of the amount and the power in the world. And then what's your favorite food you've had traveling? Tanzania... Tanzania, the spices. Tanzania is like a modge podge of the Omans and Indian influences there. So the spices are quite fragrant and flavorful. It reminded me of like Thailand and Bali because you can smell the fragrance from the spices before you do anything else. As soon as you step in, you smell the food and the aroma of like the jasmine rice and all the other spices. So I like spice and they do. Not spice in terms of heat, just spice in terms of flavor from natural. Yeah. Yeah. And you can go to the market and get like just their spice markets there. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite the place, but for food, yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I'll link all your, your links that you mentioned in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Recipe to the Road podcast. If you want to contact the show or you have any comments or questions, you can get me on Instagram at recipe to the road or by email recipe to the road at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow my journey and see what I'm doing at the moment, you can also see that on my Instagram at recipe to the road. Thank you for listening.